God, we worship you in spirit and truth this morning. Lord, we worship you for you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy of the highest honor, God. You're worthy of all the glory, all of our mind's attention, all of our heart's affection. You're worthy of it all, Lord. We praise you for your faithfulness, God. Faithfulness to the cross and through the resurrection, Lord. And that's the reason we're able to sing this morning. That's the reason we're able to approach your throne um, with boldness. It's only by the blood of Jesus, Lord. May we live that way, God. Help us to focus on you this morning and what you would have uh, spoken to our hearts through your word. It's all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen, for leading us this morning. I love the line of that song, 10,000 years and then forevermore. Man, we're just going to be getting started at that point. What a blessing. So thank you, gentlemen, for leading us this morning. As always, I want to say a special thanks to Pastor Lee for allowing me to share his pulpit today. As most of you know, he is in Uganda with his wife, Susan, their daughter, Amy. And just to hear uh, what is going on with the ministry there with Elizabeth's voice, absolutely amazing. So um, I'm sure Lee will share a little bit more when he gets back. So praising the Lord for what he is doing there. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Lee started a teaching series on Sunday mornings about what Jesus had to say about the blank. And we've talked about what Jesus had to say about hell, what Jesus uh, had to say about heaven. And I asked Pastor Lee, I said, may I continue on in this series if you would grant me your blessing? He said, did you pray about it? I said, yes, sir. And he said, go for it. So I said, all right, we're going to do it. So this morning, we're going to talk about what Jesus had to say about the church. So this morning, I would encourage you to go to the book of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 20. And as you get there, Matthew 16, would you stand together as we get to read God's word and out of the reverence uh, of that. So Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, and we're going to go to verse 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as we have read your word, I pray, God, that it would speak to our hearts. God, that we would understand that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God, thank you for our church. Thank you for this time as we get to hear your word. And I pray, God, that again, you are glorified through everything that is said and done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So around this time last year, uh, we began to hear this phrase, this question, who or what is essential? And I'm sure you could probably remember that. It was a very highly debated uh, thought that was going throughout the world, uh, even in our own country. Uh, politically, it was spoken of. Personally, we talked about it. Who or what is essential? 
Uh, and on March 11th of 2020, last year, we were told to give it two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, that did not pan out the way we wanted to. And during that time, we began to see how schools and businesses were beginning to close their doors for a period of time, maybe even changing their schedules a little bit in businesses. And even bringing it closer to home, churches also began to close. Uh, most churches went online. We also went online for a period of time. Uh, now, being very honest with you, during this time last year, I did personally experience some doubt and some fear about our church. I thought that possibly our church could be closed for a good while. Uh, for me, it was difficult not seeing people, me being a people person. It was difficult not getting to be around our youth and teach and encourage them. Um, and at, even at times, I even began to worry about my own job here because of this, what was going on, and as well as uh, my coworkers and their job. And honestly, I was a little bit more concerned about that than I was even the virus. Uh, and even personally, I began to ask myself the question, am I essential? Now, understand, I'm not trying to have a woe is me moment, anything like that, but I think that kind of speaks to all of us. I'm sure we all kind of thought uh, those thoughts last year. But coming back to that original question, that original phrase, who or what is essential? Well, according to what we just read in Matthew chapter 16, we, the church, are essential. And yes, governments may question it, news outlets may deny it, local communities may even insult it, but the God of this universe believes that you, His church, are essential. And at times, I think the church can be misunderstood. Uh, in its perception, when we use the word church, more often than not, uh, people probably perceive it as we're talking about a building. Uh, and naturally, we just say that, hey, I'm heading up to the church. I'll meet you at the church. I even contribute to that at times when I say, hey, honey, Ashley, if you need me, I'll, I'll be up at the church. And we just do that out of habit. But now, Scripture is abundantly clear. The church is not the building. It's the people. And that's what Scripture teaches us. And the Greek word that we have in the New Testament for the word church is ekklesia. And that's very important, which translates to a gathering or an assembly. And in our case, it's an assembly, a gathering of believers. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, if you'll put that up on the screen, does kind of give us a picture of this. And it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of the saints. There it is, the assembly of the saints, ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. And it says, Not forsaking the assembly of the saints, as in the manner of some are doing, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. You see, God values His church and believes His church is essential and we need to see it the way God sees it. And we do not need to forsake the assembly of the saints. We are to here to provoke one another unto love and to good works, building each other, uh, other up, exhorting one another. That's very important that we are to do that. Now, by a show of hands, how many of us in here say or can say that we actually grew up in the church? By a show of hands, said so there's a good amount, yeah. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you would say that, you know, I did not grow up in the church, but now I am in the church? Show of hands. Yeah, now look around at that. That's, that's absolutely amazing, okay? And I want you to understand this. If you grew up in the church and you are continuing in the faith, to that I say praise God. And if you did not grow up in the, in the church, but now you are following Christ you know, and, and being obedient to Him, to that I say praise God. 
That's a wonderful thing. And a lot of us who did grow up within the church, not all of us grew up the same. We all grew up with different practices, different styles, uh, different traditions. Some of us grew up Baptist, some Methodist, some Lutheran, some Church of Christ, some Presbyterian, some Assembly of God, some Pentecostal. Don't dance. Just kidding. And the list can go on. Hey, listen, I do, I do tease about that, but I remember in high school, I was invited to the Victory Christian Center out in Azle when I was about a 17-year-old boy, which is a Pentecostal church. And I was invited for a Wednesday night, see you at the poll rally. And uh, there's my over-the-top extremist Baptist mom who had to remind me, now you know that Pentecostal girls don't wear pants, right? And as a 17-year-old boy, I was like, well, that's going to be a little distracting. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, my mom didn't get that joke. And she's like, that's because they wear skirts. I'm like, okay, mom, sorry. But then when she did get the joke, she's like, get your mind out of the gutter, boy. So anyways, but yes, I grew up very, very, I mean, very Southern Baptist. And some of you are like, oh, that's making sense now. Yes. But yes, I grew up very Southern Baptist. And uh, anybody else with me? Anybody else grow up Southern Baptist? Yeah, I knew I smelled a self-righteous spirit in here. Uh, just teasing. You got to make fun of yourself sometimes. But yeah, my dad, he was a Southern Baptist minister. My mom played the piano, the organ. She led all the children's choirs. I remember my mom, she would learn the sheet music so that way she wasn't looking at the hymnal or the sheet music in front of her. She was staring at me and my brother while we were while she was playing the song just to make sure we didn't mess up in church. You know, we, we had to act right. I remember at a time uh, when I was probably a six-year-old boy, she was playing the organ, and I just crawled up there on the bench with her, and she, she was cool about that. She was fine until I discovered that there were pedals down at the bottom, and I started hitting them with my feet, and she told me to stop. I did not stop, and what does she do? During the middle of the song, threw me on her shoulder and walked down the aisle, and I decided to scream, Help! Don't beat me, Mom! And thankfully, I survived that day, praise the Lord. But yes, I grew up very Southern Baptist. I was a devout member of the RAs, the Royal Ambassadors. I remember having those big outdoor tent revivals. Anybody with me on that? Uh, just the other day, we were having lunch with a group of people, and I was talking about how we had a big five-day outdoor big tent revival in the parking lot of the Piggly Wiggly in Jefferson, Texas. That was a beautiful thing, yes. Now, although I might tease about my parents and about my upbringing in the church. I honestly, I am so grateful for the influence of my parents and my upbringing within the church. Uh, my dad taught me the meaning of worshiping God in all the aspects of my life. My mom taught me the value of scripture and prayer. I was discipled by a few men who taught me the importance of the gospel and how to share it. And I am so grateful for that. And because of the church, I have lifelong friends that I will get to spend eternity with. That's a wonderful thing. And just because I or people in here that we grew up in the church does not make us any better than anyone or even smarter than anyone. And I think at times, if we're not careful, we can develop this very pious, self-righteous attitude and we have to guard ourselves from that. We are not better than anyone. It just means because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross and His resurrection from the dead and our belief in that, that we get to be a part of an eternal family and nothing can ever replace that. Nothing can ever replace that. And it's not the denominations that unite us. It is not the practices or traditions that unite us, but it is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that good news that unites us together as 
the church. And coming back to the scripture in verse 13, he says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And now here in Matthew 16, we see what most theologians believe is the beginning of the Christian church. And in this particular verse, we see that Christ takes his disciples to a very, I mean, very important location called Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is located in the region of Banyas. I believe I said that correctly. And Caesarea Philippi is about 100 miles or so north of Jerusalem. It's about, 100, about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, just kind of give you uh, in location is northern Israel. And now this location is, as I said, extremely important to this gospel narrative that Matthew is telling us about. This is the furthest north point that Jesus took his disciples before they journeyed all the way back to Jerusalem before Jesus was put on trial and crucified. But within this specific location of Caesarea Philippi, there is actually a very profound meaning of why he took his disciples at this location. And this is one of the reasons why we always tell the youth that when we look at Scripture, we also have to consider the history behind a lot of these verses that we read. And let me explain why this is important. This specific spot where Jesus took his disciples was a very, very well-known location. And it is still very well-known today, very well-talked about today. And it is called the Grotto of Pan. Now, if you don't know what a grotto is, it is an opening artificial uh, hole that's been dug out into a cave uh, and in this specific cave, it once had flowing water, but today it's mostly dried out. And this opening of the cave is actually still there today. Now, I do have two photos I want you to see. So if you'll go ahead and throw up those photos for us. This is the sanctuary of Pan, okay? Now, what I want you to focus on is this left side of the picture. You see that little temple there. And right behind the temple, you can kind of see the top of that big hole right there, okay? That is the grotto right there, all right? And then there's also another picture I wanted to see. This is of today. That is now the, the big giant hole, the grotto there. And the temple is no longer there, obviously, okay? So this is very important. But this is known as the grotto of Pan. And this is where Jesus took his disciples. Now, Pan was the little G-God that was worshipped there. Pan was pictured as a little goat man. All right, this is the, how he was pictured. He was a little man who had, you know, horns on his head. He was a little goat man, and he was considered the god of nature and fertility. And I know some of you uh, in this congregation today have actually been to this location, so you know what I'm talking about. Now, when the Greeks took charge in Israel, they built that small temple that we just saw right there in front of the grotto. And inside this temple, pagan worship took place as well as some sacrifices. And the tradition was that they would sacrifice goats, they would throw this, them into the cave where the water was, and if the goat sank, Pan would accept their sacrifice. But if the goat didn't sink and would rise to the top, that meant, uh-oh, Pan didn't accept our sacrifice. So what would they do? Well, they would continue to sacrifice goats until he would, or if he would not accept those sacrifice, they would then turn to child sacrifice, which is a very serious thing. And the reason the Greeks had this temple built there in front of that giant hole is because it was a very, very feared location. Because the opening of that grotto was known as the gates of hell. 
what they believed the gate to the spiritual underworld. And even in the Old Testament, before all that was there, we do see that Baal worship took place within those courtyards. So there is some significance to this. So people would literally come and worship, make their sacrifices to these pagan gods while celebrating the kingdom of darkness. It's even been stated that a lot of Jews, that certain Jews were forbidden to be in that area. Now, hopefully you're beginning to see the reason why Jesus takes his disciples here. And trust me, there's more to come. And in this verse, verse 13, Jesus then asked the question to his disciples, which is a very important question. Who do people say that the son of man is? Here's why this is important. This is a title, the son of man that is found in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 and 14. And of course, it's also found in the New Testament, in the gospels, throughout the book of Acts, even some of the epistles. Um, This title for Jesus is found and the prophet Daniel caught a vision from the Lord. And this is Daniel seven, 13 and 14. We have those on the screen. It says, and I saw, excuse me, I saw in the night visions and behold, With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You see this title, Son of Man, indicates the one who has been given authority by the Most High God. This is the authority to judge and the authority to vindicate. The Son of Man is the leader of the kingdom. He is the highest figure that represents His people, which is the church. This is very important. Now in verses 14 through 16, He says, or excuse me, and it says, and they said, as the disciples begin to respond, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now here we see the responses of what the majority are probably saying and thinking that Jesus is just one of the major prophets that was spoken of in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, And realistically, this is probably considered a proper messianic expectation in Israel because most Jews knew about a great prophet who was to come, but they did not accept the appearance of Jesus as the Christ. Remember, it was prophesied that He was the stone that the builders rejected. But now Jesus kind of throws a little monkey wrench here to the disciples in this line of thinking. He says, but you, my disciples, my followers, who do you say that I am? And we see something that is absolutely amazing. And I want to read Peter's response again. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which just means son of Jonah or Jonas, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now once again, Peter becomes the spokesperson for the disciples. Now God bless Peter Uh, He didn't really seem to have the best track record uh, with his responses and his reactions. Uh, He also got the nickname as Impulsive Peter. He was hasty. He was excitable. Uh, Matthew 14, uh, in speculation, whenever Jesus was walking on the water, he said, Hey, if that's you, Lord, tell me to come out there. 
And so he did. What does he do? He takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins to sink uh, there at the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew 16, literally just a few verses uh, over, uh, Peter begins to rebuke Jesus when Jesus said he's going to die and be resurrected. Mark chapter 9, Peter awkwardly speaks during the transfiguration. There's Jesus along with Elijah and Moses, and then there's Peter, James, and John with Jesus, and their bodies are transfigured into their heavenly bodies. And then there's Peter, you know, I understand this just very awkwardly. Hey, why don't we build some altars here? And there's God like, dude, shut up. Listen, this is my son. And so Peter does that. He just, you know, awkwardly speaks. John chapter 13, Peter tells Jesus not to wash his feet. He rebukes Jesus again. John 18, Jesus willfully gives himself up to be arrested. And what does Peter do? Jumps out with the sword trying to cut the dude's ear off. Matthew chapter 26, Peter denies Jesus three times even after he told Jesus he ain't going to do that. But he denies him three times. Peter didn't always do the correct thing, didn't always get it right. But here, I'm going to say this. Peter absolutely gets it right. And his response is so, so timely. First of all, we see a Jewish man, Peter, tell Jesus that he is the Christ. Now, most Jews considered Jesus just as a great prophet, as I said earlier. And to even call a man, Jesus, the Christ, it would have been considered blasphemy at this time. Now, if you don't believe that, go read John chapter 10 and how they reacted to that. Jesus, again, the stone as the builders rejected, but Peter knew and believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you see, the name Christ is literally the highest title in Scripture that is given to Jesus. This title means that He is the anointed chosen one from God to be the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies that are found in the Old Testament and those that are to come in the New Testament. Not that He was the Christ or will be the Christ when those are fulfilled, but no, He is the Christ. Jesus the Christ is the fulfillment of all the prophecies that we find in Scripture. And also notice this. Peter says, you are the Son of the living God. Again, remember the location where they were in Caesarea Philippi. They are surrounded by the worship and sacrifices to dead false gods. And in the midst of all that, he says, Jesus, you are the Son of the living God. That's huge. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, the Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus, the Christ, the second person of the eternal Trinity. Jesus, the Christ, the Alpha, the Omega. Jesus, the Christ, the Lamb who will be slain for the sin of the world. Jesus, the Christ, who will raise Himself from the dead. Jesus, the Christ, the name above every name, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter got it right and this is the point to this entire account that his disciples would see this and that you his believers would see this that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God in verse 17 Jesus answered him he says blessed are you Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven of course, as Christians, we should know that this is a work from God, not a work from ourselves. Uh, when we proclaim Christ as the Lord, that is a work from God, the Holy Spirit, not a work of ourselves. And then in verse 18, here is where we see Jesus answering the confession to Peter. He says, and I tell you 
You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And after Peter makes this confession about Jesus, Jesus gives this amazing promise about his church. Jesus addressed Peter, and in the Greek word that is used for Peter here is petros, meaning little rock, or even some translations even go as far as pebble. And Jesus says, on this rock, and the word he uses there for rock in the Greek is petra, which means large, big rock. Now, there are certain denominations, sadly, that misinterpret and even twist this scripture. Uh, and there are three major schools of thought on this. The first thought is a very popular belief within a certain religion uh, that thinks that Jesus is building the church upon Peter, that Ch Peter is now the foundation of the church. And it has been used to define Peter as even the first pope. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us that Peter had a wife, so good luck explaining that one. And then there's the second thought that Jesus is using Peter's faith as a metaphor and that continuing faith like Peter's and the apostles is the foundation for the church. Now, here is why these two thoughts, these two lines of uh, thinking are very problematic for us. Because that would mean that the foundation of the church is now sinful man. And if the foundation is sinful man, sorry, we're doomed. We're absolutely doomed. And these lines of teaching actually contradict what Scripture says. Consider what Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And if you'll put those up, and it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. But on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So for the Christian, the church, as the song says, our hope is built on nothing less then Jesus Christ our righteousness. And we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but we wholly lean upon Jesus' name because on Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is the foundation of the church. But remember the location where Jesus took them. You see, Caesarea Philippi is also considered the foot of Mount Hermon, which is the highest point in all of Israel. And on this rock face where this grotto was carved out, it was just an astonishing sight, a vis visible sight for them to see. And Jesus gives them this large visible illustration of this giant rock. And Jesus, sa Jesus says that the statement that Peter makes about him, that you are the Christ, this is the rock on which the church is built, the foundation of who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is not only the foundation but he is also the one who is building his church. And to finish off this verse, Jesus makes what I would just say a very bone-chilling statement. I don't know how, what, how else you would you know, say this. As he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, from a military perspective, historically, the gates always resembled a line of defense. So Jesus is actually making a distinction here. That the church, his church, is always on the offensive. 
And the kingdom of darkness is always on the defensive. That's very important. Because church, we are the people of God who are to invade the kingdom of darkness with the light of Christ. We are always on the offensive. And when Jesus uses the phrase, the gates of hell, the Greek word he uses for hell is actually Hades. Some of your translations probably actually say that. The gates of Hades. This is the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the place of eternal torture and the absence of God. And Jesus shows his disciples this massive hole that led to the underworld. And he says that not even the gates of Hades can withstand the power of the church of God. It's absolutely huge. And in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus here delegates his stance and the responsibilities to human leaders within the church to exercise the authority that the church has been given by her master. We are the bride. He is the groom. He is our master. And here he's saying, listen, whatever is bind here on earth shall be bound in heaven. What is loose here on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we as the church have been given the responsibilities to go extend forgiveness. Go share the gospel. Go proclaim the word of God. Go and make disciples. We have been given permission by the bride of Christ to march on. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, part of the verse, I love what Paul says. He says, The church of the living God, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That is so important that we remember this. That the church of God is the foundation of where the truth is held. And this is why we are to take God's word serious. So this morning, we can say as a church with confidence that this church, it's not ours, it's God's. And I don't mean just the church of the crossing. I'm talking about his church. It's not ours. It's God's. And Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And our king gives us this promise that no matter what comes, yes, the roads might get rocky, the seas might get rough, but his church is going to march on. His church is more precious than any jewel. It's purer than any pearl. It's more powerful than any army. God planned the church. Jesus purchased his church and the Holy Spirit empowers his church and you and I get to be a part of his church. We are a branch on His vine, a block in His building. We are a royal priesthood that God has called out of the darkness into His marvelous light. We are not fugitives running from something. No, we are pilgrims headed for something. Thank God we are on the winning side because we are the product of His grace, the recipients of His mercy. We're the object of His love and the inheritance of His glory with the gospel as our mission and the word as our sword. How firm the foundation for Jesus Christ's church. Church. That's how we stand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and His righteousness. That's where we stand today. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this morning, I would go ahead and say, maybe some of you are not a part of the church. And I'm not meaning this church here. I'm talking about you're not part of God's people. And all you need to do to be a part of God's church is believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And He died for your sins. 
He rose from the dead, and one day he is going to return for his church. And that's a promise that Jesus himself makes, and he will not break that promise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. God, I thank you so much for the promise you give us in your word. Lord, we do experience troubles and suffering. Sometimes we are questioned. But Lord, you have told us the gates of hell shall not prevail against the work of the church. God, I pray we do not lose sight of that. God, that we realize that we are built upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And Lord, you are the same as yesterday, today, and forever, and you will not change. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your great family. I am so thankful. And I pray, God, as the church, that we will take your mission serious, God, that we will love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, God, that we would go into this world, whether that's across the sea or even across the street, God, that we will go and make disciples, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we need your help in that. God, as we just read that it is not flesh and blood that does those things, it is our Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would just empower us and give us the strength to live out your will. Lord, I pray for anyone in here today, Lord, that maybe they've never trusted as Jesus as their Lord, as the Christ. I pray, God, today that you would speak to their hearts. And God, that you would show them their sin. And God, that they would turn from their sin and turn to the person of Jesus Christ. Because God, you have promised us eternal life. And there is no greater gift than that. God, again, thank you so much for your great love, for your compassion upon us. God, that we get to be the recipients of your glory. And God, we get to spend eternity with you. What a wonderful thing. God, thank you for our church here. Thank you so much for the families here that are represented. And I pray, God, that we would not forsake this assembly, but God, that we would continue to grow in our faith. And God, we would continue to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in love and good works. God, that we would provoke each other unto those good works. God, again, thank you so much for your kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you so much for providing your son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you so much that you are risen from the dead. We do not serve a dead God. Lord, we praise you. We worship you and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.